section 25 of the world's famous orations volume 3 this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org the world's famous orations volume 3 on affairs in america by william pitt earl of chatham on affairs in america footnote spoken in the house of lords november 18 1777 a report of this speech was corrected by Chatham himself, and its publication authorized by him. It has usually been accepted as his greatest oration. He was then in his seventieth year. In spite of his efforts, the amendment proposed by him was lost by a vote of ninety-seven to twenty-four. Parliament then adjourned, and the alliance between France and America, which made certain the triumph of the colonies, became an accomplished fact. Chatham's last appearance in Parliament was made a few months after this speech, on April 7, 1778, when he protested against the acknowledgment of American independence because it would dismember the British Empire. End footnote. 1777. I rise, my lords, to declare my sentiments on this most solemn and serious subject. It has imposed a load upon my mind which I fear nothing can remove but which impels me to endeavor its alleviation by a free and unreserved communication of my sentiments. In the first part of the address I have the honor of heartily concurring with the noble Earl who moved it. No man feels sincerer joy than I do. None can offer more genuine congratulations on every accession of strength to the Protestant succession. I therefore join in every congratulation on the birth of another princess, and the happy recovery of Her Majesty. But I must stop here. My courtly complaisance will carry me no farther. I will not join in congratulation on misfortune and disgrace. I cannot concur in a blind and servile address which approves and endeavors to sanctify the monstrous measures which have heaped disgrace and misfortune upon us. This, my lords, is a perilous and tremendous moment. It is not a time for adulation. The smoothness of flattery cannot now avail cannot save us in this rugged and awful crisis it is now necessary to instruct the throne in the language of truth we must dispel the illusion and the darkness which envelop it and display in its full danger and true colors the ruin that is brought to our doors this my lords is our duty it is the proper function of this noble assembly sitting as we do upon our honors in this house the hereditary council of the crown who is the minister where is the minister that has dared to suggest to the throne the contrary unconstitutional language this day delivered from it the accustomed language from the throne has been application to parliament for advice and a reliance on its constitutional advice and assistance as it is the right of parliament to give so it is the duty of the crown to ask it but on this day and in this extreme momentous exigency no reliance is reposed on our constitutional councils. No advice is asked from the sober and enlightened care of Parliament. But the Crown, from itself and by itself, declares an unalterable determination to pursue measures. And what measures, my lords? The measures that have produced the imminent perils that threaten us. The measures that have brought ruin to our doors. Can the minister of the day now presume to expect a continuance of support in this ruinous infatuation? 
can parliament be so dead to its dignity and its duty as to be thus deluded into the loss of the one and the violation of the other to give an unlimited credit and support for the steady perseverance in measures not proposed for our parliamentary advice but dictated and forced upon us in measures i say my lords which have reduced this late flourishing empire to ruin and contempt but yesterday in england might have stood against the world now none so poor to do her reverence footnote news had just reached england of the defeat of burgoyne at saratoga End footnote. i use the words of a poet but though it be poetry it is no fiction it is a shameful truth that not only the power and strength of this country are wasting away and expiring but her well-earned glories her true honor and substantial dignity are sacrificed france my lords has insulted you she has encouraged and sustained america and whether america be wrong or right the dignity of this country ought to spurn at the officious insult of french interference the ministers and ambassadors of those who are called rebels and enemies are in paris footnote franklin dean and lee are here referred to End footnote. in paris they transact the reciprocal interest of america and france can there be a more mortifying insult can even our ministers sustain a more humiliating disgrace do they dare to resent it do they presume even to hint a vindication of their honor and the dignity of the state by requiring the dismission of the plenipotentiaries of america such is the degradation to which they have reduced the glories of england the people whom they affect to call contemptible rebels but whose growing power has at last obtained the name of enemies the people with whom they have engaged this country in war and against whom they now command our implicit support in every measure of desperate hostility this people despised as rebels or acknowledged as enemies are abetted against you supplied with every military store their interests consulted and their ambassadors entertained by your inveterate enemy and our ministers dare not interpose with dignity or effect is this the honor of a great kingdom is this the indignant spirit of england who but yesterday gave law to the house of bourbon my lords the dignity of nations demands a decisive conduct in a situation like this even when the greatest prince that perhaps this country ever saw filled our throne the requisition of a spanish general on a similar subject was attended to and complied with for on the spirited remonstrance of the duke of alba elizabeth found herself obliged to deny the flemish exiles all countenance support or even entrance into her dominions and the count lamarck with his few desperate followers were expelled from the kingdom happening to arrive at the brill and finding it weak in defence they made themselves masters of the place and this was the foundation of the united provinces my lords this ruinous and ignominious situation where we cannot act with success nor suffer with honor calls upon us to remonstrate in the strongest and loudest language of truth to rescue the ear of majesty from the delusions which surround it the desperate state of our arms abroad is in part known no man thinks more highly of them than i do i love and honor the english troops i know their virtues and their valor i know they can achieve anything except impossibilities and i know that the conquest of english america is an impossibility you cannot i venture to say it you cannot conquer america 
Your armies in the last war effected everything that could be effected in what was it? It cost a numerous army, under the command of a most able general, Lord Amherst, now a noble lord in this house, a long and laborious campaign to expel five thousand Frenchmen from French America. My lords, you cannot conquer America. What is your present situation there? We do not know the worst, but we know that in three campaigns we have done nothing and suffered much. Besides the suffering, perhaps, total loss of the northern force, the best appointed army that ever took the field, commanded by Sir William Howe, has retired from the American lines. Footnote. In the Burgoyne campaign, General Howe, who had been expected to proceed up the Hudson from New York City and join Burgoyne near Albany, went instead to Philadelphia. Through a blunder made in London, he had failed to receive his instructions to join Burgoyne. End footnote. He was obliged to relinquish his attempt, and with great delay and danger to adopt a new and distant plan of operations. We shall soon know, and in any event have reason to lament what may have happened since. As to conquest, therefore, my lords, I repeat, it is impossible. You may swell every expense and every effort still more extravagantly, pile and accumulate every assistance you can buy or borrow, traffic and barter with every little pitiful German prince that sells and sends his subjects to the shambles of a foreign prince. Your efforts are forever vain and impotent, doubly so from this mercenary aid on which you rely, for it irritates to an incurable resentment the minds of your enemies, to overrun them with the mercenary sons of rapine and plunder devoting them and their possessions to the rapacity of hireling cruelty. If I were an American, as I am an Englishman, while a foreign troop was landed in my country, I would never lay down my arms. Never, never, never. Your own army is infected with the contagion of these illiberal allies. The spirit of plunder and of rapine is gone forth among them. I know it and notwithstanding what the noble earl lord percy who moved the address has given as his opinion of the american army i know from authentic information and the most experienced officers that our discipline is deeply wounded while this is notoriously our sinking situation america grows and nourishes while our strength and discipline are lowered hers are rising and improving but my lords who is the man that in addition to these disgraces and mischiefs of our army has dared to authorize and associate to our arms the tomahawk and scalping-knife of the savage to call into civilized alliance the wild and inhuman savage of the woods to delegate to the merciless indian the defense of disputed rights and to wage the horrors of his barbarous war against our brethren footnote lord george germain of the ministry is here referred to see in volume eight of these orations the speeches made to him in london by joseph brandt in seventeen seventy six burgoyne came down from canada with indians in his service and st ledger came from lake ontario with others at the battle of oriskany indians were prominent under joseph brandt from that time dates the period of border wars on the frontier of new york in footnote my lords these enormities cry aloud for redress and punishment. Unless thoroughly done away, it will be a stain on the national character. It is a violation of the Constitution. I believe it is against law. 
it is not the least of our national misfortunes that the strength and character of our army are thus impaired infected with the mercenary spirit of robbery and rapine familiarized to the horrid scenes of savage cruelty it can no longer boast of the noble and generous principles which dignify a soldier no longer sympathize with the dignity of the royal banner nor feel the pride pomp and circumstance of glorious war that makes ambition virtue what makes ambition virtue the sense of honor but is the sense of honor consistent with a spirit of plunder or the practice of murder can it flow from mercenary motives or can it prompt to cruel deeds besides these murderers and plunderers let me ask our ministers what other allies have they acquired what other powers have they associated in their cause have they entered into alliance with the king of the gypsies nothing my lords is too low or too ludicrous to be consistent with their counsels the independent views of america have been stated and asserted as the foundation of this address my lords no man wishes for the due dependence of america on this country more than i do to preserve it and not confirm that state of independence into which your measures hitherto have driven them is the object which we ought to unite in attaining the americans contending for their rights against arbitrary exactions i love and admire it is the struggle of free and virtuous patriots but contending for independency and total disconnection from england as an englishman i cannot wish them success for in a due constitutional dependency including the ancient supremacy of this country in regulating their commerce and navigation consists the mutual happiness and prosperity both of england and america she derived assistance and protection from us and we reaped from her the most important advantages she was indeed the fountain of our wealth the nerve of our strength the nursery and basis of our naval power it is our duty therefore my lords if we wish to save our country most seriously to endeavour the recovery of these most beneficial subjects and in this perilous crisis perhaps the present moment may be the only one in which we can hope for success for in their negotiations with france they have or think they have reason to complain though it be notorious that they have received from that power important supplies and assistance of various kinds yet it is certain they expected it in a more decisive and immediate degree america is in ill-humor with france on some points they have not entirely answered her expectations let us wisely take advantage of every possible moment of reconciliation besides the natural disposition of america herself still leans toward england to the old habits of connection and mutual interest that united both countries this was the established sentiment of all the continent and still my lords in the great and principal part the sound part of america this wise and affectionate disposition prevails and there is a very considerable part of america yet sound the middle and the southern provinces some parts may be factious and blind to their true interests but if we express a wise and benevolent disposition to communicate with them those immutable rights of nature and those constitutional liberties to which they are equally entitled with ourselves by a conduct so just and humane we shall confirm the favorable and conciliate the adverse i say my lords the rights and liberties to which they are equally entitled with ourselves but no more i would participate to them every enjoyment and freedom which the colonizing subjects of a free state can possess or wish to possess 
and I do not see why they should not enjoy every fundamental right in their property, and every original substantial liberty, which Devonshire, or Surrey, or the county I live in, or any other county in England can claim, reserving always, as the sacred right of the mother country, the due constitutional dependency of the colonies. The inherent supremacy of the state in regulating and protecting the navigation and commerce of all her subjects is necessary for the mutual benefit and preservation of every part, to constitute and preserve the prosperous arrangement of the whole empire. The sound parts of America of which I have spoken must be sensible of these great truths and of their real interests. America is not in that state of desperate and contemptible rebellion which this country has been deluded to believe. It is not a wild and lawless banditti, who having nothing to lose might hope to snatch something from public convulsions. Many of their leaders and great men have a great stake in this great contest. The gentleman who conducts their armies, I am told, has an estate of four or five thousand pounds a year, and when I consider these things I cannot but lament the inconsiderate violence of our penal acts, our declaration of treason and rebellion, with all the fatal effects of attainder and confiscation. As to the disposition of foreign powers which is asserted to be pacific and friendly, let us judge, my lords, rather by their actions and the nature of things than by interested assertions. The uniform assistance supplied to America by France suggests a different conclusion. The most important interests of France in aggrandizing and enriching herself with what she most wants, supplies of every naval store from America, must inspire her with different sentiments. The extraordinary preparations of the House of Bourbon, by land and by sea from Dunkirk to the Straits, equally ready and willing to overwhelm these defenseless islands, should rouse us to a sense of their real disposition and our own danger. Not five thousand troops in England, hardly three thousand in Ireland. What can we oppose to the combined force of our enemies? Scarcely twenty ships of the line so fully or sufficiently manned that any admiral's reputation would permit him to take the command of. The river of Lisbon in the possession of our enemies, the sea swept by American privateers, our channel trade torn to pieces by them. In this complicated crisis of danger, weakness at home and calamity abroad, terrified and insulted by the neighboring powers, unable to act in America, or acting only to be destroyed, where is the man with the forehead to promise or hope for success in such a situation, or from perseverance in the measures that have driven us to it? Who has the forehead to do so? Where is that man? I should be glad to see his face. You cannot conciliate America by your present measures. You cannot subdue her by your present or by any measures. What, then, can you do? You cannot conquer. You cannot gain. But you can address. You can lull the fears and anxieties of the moment into an ignorance of the danger that should produce them. But, my lords, the time demands the language of truth. We must not now apply the flattering unction of servile compliance or blind complacence. In a just and necessary war to maintain the rights or honor of my country, I would strip the shirt from my back to support it. But in such a war as this, unjust in its principle, impracticable in its means, and ruinous in its consequences, I would not contribute a single effort nor a single shilling. I do not call for vengeance on the heads of those who have been guilty. I only recommend to them to make their retreat. Let them walk off and let them make haste. 
or they may be assured that speedy and condign punishment will overtake them. My lords, I have submitted to you with the freedom and truth which I think my duty, my sentiments, on your present awful situation. I have laid before you the ruin of your power, the disgrace of your reputation, the pollution of your discipline, the contamination of your morals, the complication of calamities, foreign and domestic, that overwhelm your sinking country. Your dearest interests, your own liberties, the Constitution itself totters to the foundation. All this disgraceful danger, this multitude of misery, is the monstrous offspring of this unnatural war. We have been deceived and deluded too long. Let us now stop short. This is the crisis, the only crisis of time and situation to give us a possibility of escape from the fatal effects of our delusions. But if, in an obstinate and infatuated perseverance and folly, we slavishly echo the peremptory words this day presented to us, nothing can save this devoted country from complete and final ruin. We madly rush into multiplied miseries and confusion worse confounded. Is it possible, can it be believed, that ministers are yet blind to this impending destruction? I did hope that instead of this false and empty vanity, this overweening pride engendering high conceits and presumptuous imaginations, ministers would have humbled themselves in their errors, would have confessed and retracted them, and by an active though a late repentance have endeavored to redeem them. But, my lords, since they had neither sagacity to foresee, nor justice nor humanity to shun these oppressive calamities, since not even severe experience can make them feel, nor the imminent ruin of their country awaken them from their stupefaction, the guardian care of Parliament must interpose. I shall therefore, my lords, propose to you an amendment of the address to His Majesty, to be inserted immediately after the two first paragraphs of congratulations on the birth of a princess, to recommend an immediate cessation of hostilities, and the commencement of a treaty to restore peace and liberty to America, strengthen happiness to England, security and permanent prosperity to both countries. This, my lords, is yet in our power, and let not the wisdom and justice of your lordships neglect the happy, and perhaps the only, opportunity. By the establishment of irrevocable law, founded on mutual rights and ascertained by treaty, these glorious enjoyments may be firmly perpetuated. And let me repeat to your lordships that the strong bias of America, at least of the wise and sounder parts of it, naturally inclines to this happy and constitutional reconnection with you. Notwithstanding the temporary intrigues with France, we may still be assured of their ancient and confirmed partiality to us. America and France cannot be congenial. There is something decisive and confirmed in the honest American that will not assimilate to the futility and levity of Frenchmen. My lords, to encourage and confirm that innate inclination to this country, founded on every principle of affection, as well as consideration of interest, to restore that favorable disposition into a permanent and powerful reunion with this country, to revive the mutual strength of the empire, again to awe the house of Bourbon, instead of meanly truckling as our present calamities compel us, to every insult of French caprice and Spanish punctilio, to re-establish our commerce, to reassert our rights and our honor, to confirm our interests and renew our glories forever, a consummation most devoutly to be endeavored, and which I trust may yet arise from reconciliation with America. 
I have the honor of submitting to you the following amendment, which I move to be inserted after the first two paragraphs of the address, and that this House does most humbly advise and supplicate His Majesty to be pleased to cause the most speedy and effectual measures to be taken for restoring peace in America, and that no time may be lost in proposing an immediate opening of a treaty for the final settlement of the tranquillity of these invaluable provinces by a removal of the unhappy causes of this ruinous civil war, and by a just and adequate security against the return of the like calamities in times to come. And this House desire to offer the most dutiful assurances to His Majesty, that they will, in due time, cheerfully cooperate with the magnanimity and tender goodness of His Majesty for the preservation of His people, by such explicit and most solemn declarations and provisions of fundamental and irrevocable laws, as may be judged necessary for the ascertaining and fixing forever the respective rights of Great Britain and her colonies. At this point Lord Suffolk undertook to defend the employment of Indians in the war, contending that the measure was allowable on principle, for it was perfectly justifiable to use all the means that God and nature put into our hands. Chatham then rose, and said, I am astonished, shocked to hear such principles confessed, to hear them avowed in this house or in this country, principles equally unconstitutional, inhuman, and unchristian. My lords, I did not intend to have encroached again upon your attention, but I cannot repress my indignation. I feel myself impelled by every duty. My lords, we are called upon as members of this house, as men, as Christian men, to protest against such notions standing near the throne polluting the air of majesty that God and nature put into our hands. I know not what ideas that Lord may entertain of God and nature, but I know that such abominable principles are equally abhorrent to religion and humanities. What? To attribute the sacred sanction of God and nature to the massacres of the Indian scalping-knife, to the cannibal savage torturing, murdering, roasting, and eating, literally, my lords, eating the mangled victims of his barbarous battles. Such horrible notions shock every precept of religion, divine or natural, and every generous feeling of humanity. And, my lords, they shock every sentiment of honor. They shock me as a lover of honorable war and a detester of murderous barbarity. These abominable principles and this more abominable avowal of them demand the most decisive indignation. I call upon that right reverend bench, those holy ministers of the gospel and pious pastors of our church, I conjure them to join in the holy work and vindicate the religion of their God. I appeal to the wisdom and the law of this learned bench to defend and support the justice of their country. I call upon the bishops to interpose the unsullied sanctity of their lawn, upon the learned judges to interpose the purity of their ermine, to save us from this pollution. I call upon the honor of your lordships to reverence the dignity of your ancestors and to maintain your own. I call upon the spirit and humanity of my country to vindicate the national character. I invoke the genius of the Constitution. From the tapestry that adorns these walls, the immortal ancestor of this noble lord frowns with indignation at the disgrace of his country. Footnote. Lord Howard of Effingham, Lord High Admiral of England, commanded the fleet that overthrew the Spanish Armada in 1588. The tapestries to which Chatham refers representing this battle were burned in the fire that destroyed the House of Lords in 1834. In footnote. 
in vain he led your victorious spleets against the boasted armada of spain in vain he defended and established the honor the liberties the religion the protestant religion of this country against the arbitrary cruelties of popery and the inquisition if these more than popish cruelties and inquisitorial practices are let loose among us to turn forth into our settlements among our ancient connections friends and relations the merciless cannibal thirsting for the blood of man woman and child to send forth the infidel savage against whom against your protestant brethren to lay waste their country to desolate their dwellings and extirpate their race and name with these horrible hell-hounds of savage war hell-hounds i say of savage war spain armed herself with bloodhounds to extirpate the wretched natives of america and we improve on the inhuman example of spanish cruelty we turn loose these savage hell-hounds against our brethren and countrymen in america of the same language laws liberties and religion endeared to us by every tie that should sanctify humanity my lords this awful subject so important to our honor our constitution and our religion demands the most solemn and effectual inquiry and i again call upon your lordships and the united powers of the state to examine it thoroughly and decisively and to stamp upon it an indelible stigma of the public abhorrence and again i implore those holy prelates of our religion to do away these iniquities from among us let them perform a lustration let them purify this house and this country from this sin my lords i am old and weak and at present unable to say more but my feelings and indignation were too strong to have said less i could not have slept this night in my bed nor reposed my head on my pillow without giving this vent to my eternal abhorrence of such preposterous and enormous principles End of section 25 Recording by Philip Gould